Luke chapter 13. We started last week a series on the topic of suffering. Um, and last week we grounded our feet and focused our vision entirely on Jesus. And particularly the Jesus that we see in Revelation chapter 1. Um, because what Jesus himself did for a suffering church was he revealed himself to them and he said, look at me, don't be afraid. And now, launching further into this, this will be a long road. Um, you can't deal with this in a week or two or a message or two. There's going to be some heavy, heavy lifting going on in this series. We're going to look at how to trust God in suffering. We're going to look at how to be a companion in suffering. We're going to look at what God's purpose is and what Satan's purpose is in one and the same thing. Um, lots of different things. We're going to look at the cross and at the suffering of God himself. This is going to go on for a while, so, so, so don't be walking away any Sunday thinking, why didn't, why didn't we deal with this or why didn't we deal with that? We'll get there. Today in particular is, is slightly hard work. Now, if you have a Bible, open it. If you have an app on your phone, use it, please, to, to be able to follow along with where we go when we get there. Um, there are many forms of suffering. I think sometimes we tend to default and straight away move to physical illness as suffering. But suffering can, can take many forms. And some people are in absolutely perfect health, yet suffering greatly. You can suffer due to bereavement. You can suffer due to physical handicap. And Tim's going to have a chat with us some morning over the next few weeks and tell us a wee bit just about how he deals with, with his own handicap. We can suffer because of broken relationships. You can suffer because of unhappy marriages. Linda could tell you a thing or two about that from the counselling room. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, I, I tend I used to have this idea that, that marriages maybe struggled after quite a long period of time, but you know, we're, we're seeing marriages that are struggling very, very early in the journey, very early, particularly because of selfish little boys who won't act like men, and uh, women then struggling and suffering, really suffering in, in tremendously difficult marriage relationships. So an unhappy marriage can be a form of suffering. Involuntary singleness can be a form of suffering. People who are lonely, and loneliness in general, depression, poverty, no matter how hard you work and how careful you are, there still never seems to be anything left over. Unemployment, the battle with temptation, disappointment, tsunamis, hurricanes, school shootings, just any number of things that cause suffering. So don't necessarily limit this to, to physical illness. In Luke chapter 13, there's a short little passage that I want to read and we'll, we'll come back to it a little bit later. Now there were some present, this is the start of the chapter, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Some slaughter had occurred where Pilate had killed a group of people while they were making sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you no. 
But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them. Again, referring to some historical accident that we don't really know much about, but obviously killed 18 people. Do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. One of the most common questions in the whole area of suffering that I'm going to try to address, not answer, but address this morning is the question, why? Why? Theologians talk about the problem of evil. Why does God allow some people to suffer greatly while others have lives that seem virtually pain-free? Why me? Why does God let this happen? Why did God create a world like this? Why did the trigger in the gun not jam? Why? All these questions, most of which begin with the word why. And different worldviews will answer this question in different ways. Polytheism. Poly means many. Theism means God or God's. Polytheism is, a, is the belief that there are lots of gods and they're all squabbling with each other and that's why there is suffering on the earth. That's a form of Hinduism. Pantheism has this idea that the universe and God are all one big blob and the physical world is actually an illusion and you have to meditate your way out of it into the real world of nirvana. That's Hinduism and then into Buddhism. Atheism says there's no God. And about half a billion people in the world today claim that they are atheists. And a key reason, they say, for their belief or their lack of belief in God is the existence of evil. They say if he does nothing about it, then he must not exist. And they say a world of pain and suffering is just the way it is. We're all just a mass of randomly arranged cells and molecules. There's no order to it and there's no structure to it. And therefore the atheist does not appear to have a problem with evil. They say that's just the way the world is at the current state of evolution. The atheist may not have a problem with evil, but the atheist has a much bigger problem. The atheist has the problem of good. If you're going to say that the world is all just an accidentally arranged bunch of cells and molecules that evolved over millions and millions and billions of years, how do you explain the good that is in the world? How does the atheist explain good? The Christian will address the problem of evil. The atheist needs to address the problem of good. Why do you laugh? Why do you laugh? Why is there so much in life that gives you enjoyment and pleasure? Why does food taste so good and coffee smell so good? Why, why is there such joy in simple little things like the laughter of a, of a baby, the smile of an infant? Atheists have a problem with good. Why are there so many good things in the world? So much beauty in creation. How do you explain, you know, the atheist wants to know why the trigger in the gun didn't jam. But the Christian says, how can you explain somebody standing in between the bullets? How can you explain the good that is within people if we're just a, a mess and a mass of molecules? 
Christianity acknowledges that evil is a massive problem. For us who believe in a God who is good and who is sovereign in a world that is filled with tragedy and evil and suffering, every single day you see something that reminds you of the suffering of this world. And people say either your God is powerful but not loving enough to do anything about it, or else he is loving but not powerful enough to do anything about it. And Christians do not deny the existence of God the way atheists do. They just say there's no God. And Christians do not deny the existence of evil the way pantheists do and they try to meditate their way out of it. Christians say God is good, all good. God is all powerful and evil is real. Evil exists. We believe that the universe was created out of nothing by God and therefore we have someone to go to with the question, why? Atheists don't. Polytheists don't. They have 330 million gods. Who do you go to? Who do you ask? We have someone who made this universe ex nihilo, out of nothing. And we can go to him and he welcomes our questions. He welcomes our lament. He welcomes our frustration. He knows our hearts, so we should not dress it up differently when we go to him. At the heart of the question, why? No matter who's asking it, whether it's a Christian or an atheist or who, at the heart of the question, why, there is an understanding within us that something better should be happening. It should not be like this. Whenever anyone starts to, to, to look at something and say, why is that the way it is? What you are acknowledging is something within you knows that it shouldn't be like that. Something within you knows that this is wrong. And suffering is not part of God's created order. In Genesis 1 and 2, when God created the heavens and the earth, and at the end of it all, in Genesis 1.31, he looked at it all and he saw all that he had made and it was very good. Suffering was not there at that point. God made everything good. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Suffering came after humanity rebelled against God in Genesis 3. We'll look at it later. That's the start and that's the creation without suffering in its original perfect form. And the end of the story in Revelation 21 talks about a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more pain. Suffering will not figure in the new heaven and the new earth. It is in this in-between period because of the rebellion of humanity against God. It is not what God originally created. It is not what he will restore in the new creation. So there should be hope for us that at the end of all things, those who trust him and follow him will be part of that new creation. I don't believe that suffering is good, but I believe God in his sovereign power works all things for good for those that love him and who are called according to his purpose. We will look in the future at a, a message about how God uses suffering for good. One of the questions that we sometimes ask, one of the why questions is, why did God create a world like this? 
You ever think about the audacity of saying something like that? God, why did you actually create a world like this? Just imagine for a moment you are divine. Some of you, that'll be harder than others. Like, but, you know, imagine you, you can just do anything and you, you are going to create a world. You're going to create a world. You have God's divine creative power. What sort of world are you going to create? Because you know, you've been throwing questions at God. Why did you create a world like this, God, where this happens? All right, you have a go and see how you get on. A few questions for you. This is, this is from a book by a lady whose name I can't remember. Sharon, can't remember her surname. No, the one you gave me. But it's really good. Um, <laughs> water. Are you going to create water in your world? Because all life needs water, but you can drown in water. Are you going to create water or not? Are you going to create bacteria in your, in your new world that you're going to make better than God's world? Because the human body needs bacteria inside to digest food. But bacteria carry MRSA type viruses and bugs and super bugs that kill people. Are you going to, what are you going to do? Eh? Are you going to create physical pain? chatting with Tim about this earlier you could, you could put a knife into Tim's leg and he wouldn't know are you going to create physical pain because without it people don't know that they're actually doing damage to their bodies physical pain is a warning system that there's something wrong are you going to create it or not are you going to leave it out and just allow people to, to potentially do something that will completely destroy them are you going to give people advanced thinking ability an intellect, because they could use that to create medicines. They could use that to create all sorts of things for the good of humanity. But they could also use it to create weapons that potentially could wipe out the planet. Are you going to give people free will in the world that you create? Because if you give people free will, they could do things that will result in suffering for others. So maybe you should withhold free will to prevent that from happening. But if you don't give people free will, they cannot love. There will be no love in your world. Love has always got to be an act of free will. It can never be an act of compliance. This creating lark isn't as easy as we maybe think it would be. We toss these questions around. We don't really think Maybe about the implications of them. God wants people to be able to freely choose to follow him or to walk away from him. Always. So he'd have got to have free will for that to be a reality. Let's look at the difference between two different types of evil that you'll, you'll hear people talk about. Moral evil and natural evil. The vast majority of suffering on this planet is due to human sin and wickedness. Humanity suffers because humanity is sinful. Do not misunderstand that to think that the suffering of an individual is due to the sin of an individual. That can be the case. Somebody gets drunk and goes out and drives the car and crashes into a tree and wounds themselves badly. You know, their own sin and stupidity has led to their own suffering. But that's not the statement I make. What I'm saying is, in general, humanity suffers because of human sin. God gave the ability to choose how they live, and that will then affect others. In Luke chapter 13 that we read, we've got an example of moral evil. 
in verses 2 and 3, where Pilate slaughtered a group of people. And then some people came and asked Jesus about it. And he said to them, don't you think, don't be coming to the conclusion that these people were more guilty than anyone else, that they deserved it. So moral evil is the, is the action of human beings. I don't know where this shirt was made. I don't know if the hands that made it were well paid. I don't know if it was child labor. The coffee that I drink, there's a sticker on the side of it, but I don't know whether it was ethically farmed or not, whether creation was looked after in the process and whether the farmers were looked after. I don't know these things. A lot of our decisions on day-to-day basis can cause suffering for other people. The drunk driver who goes out and kills somebody else, sin causes suffering. And there's a spiritual evil frequently behind that. When you look at the, the Holocaust, when you look at 9-11, when you look at people driving cars into crowds of people on the street, when you look at, at, at guys detonating suicide bombs at concerts that piles of children are at, there's a spiritual evil at work there, I believe. A demonic influence. So evil, a lot of sin, a lot of suffering is caused by the choices and the behaviors of human beings. But there's also natural evil that people use to describe things like volcanoes and tsunamis, earthquakes, that don't appear to be directly associated with human behavior. And again, in this passage, as Jesus is speaking to these people, he tells them, a tar fell, a natural act. It was nobody's fault. It was like a, like a tsunami, like a hurricane. It was not the fault of one human being, but people suffered because of it. And Jesus addresses it and he says again, don't come to the conclusion that they deserve that. Don't come to the conclusion that God got 18 people together who he wanted to wipe out and then dumped a tar on the top of them. That is not what happened. But I still believe natural evil is down to human sin. In Genesis chapter 3, God says to Adam that the ground is going to be cursed because of you. And he says thorns and thistles are going to come from it because of your sin. This was not the original intention for thorns and thistles and for the ground to be cursed. But creation itself suffered brokenness because of human sin. Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us that creation is groaning waiting for the redemption of the sons of God, waiting for God to come and put things right. Creation itself is broken because of our sin. So we may look at these natural disasters and say, well, that's not our fault. That's just the way the world is. But that's just the way the world is because humanity rebelled against God. And creation itself is broken as a consequence of that. Adam was always designed to work. But in Genesis chapter 3, the work became an awful lot harder. Cursed be the ground. And Jesus says in Luke 13, you be very careful. Every time something like this happens, there'll be some Muppet who will come on TV from a church or a Christian background and say something stupid about how these people in this particular culture deserve to be washed away by a tsunami. Or deserve to be swallowed up by an earthquake. It is absolute madness. Jesus says you cannot come to the conclusion that they deserve anything any more than anyone else does. 
So we scream at God in the, in the aftermath of something like the tsunami in 2004. If you can remember that, I'm sure you know where you were. Boxing Day 2004, the TV on, watching just the, the devastation as about a quarter of a million lives were wiped out. And the scream again rises up. Why does God allow such suffering? Such appalling suffering on such a large scale in such a short time without any warning. Why? The question. Hold it in your mind. The questions nearly always start with why. And our gut reaction is to accuse God. When we ask that question, there's an accusation behind it. And other people ask the question as well. You know, the atheist will come and say, why does your God allow that? And Christopher Wright, who's a, a theologian from, originally from Northern Ireland, says how it's funny that these accusations against God frequently come from those who don't believe in God, but like to accuse the God they don't believe in of his failure to do the things he should do if he did exist. <laughs> Why does God allow such suffering? Again, Chris Wright goes on to suggest what God might say in response to that question. When we land in front of him and say, why do you allow such suffering? He might well say, well, excuse me, but in the time that you've been preaching this morning, probably thousands of children have died across the world of preventable diseases. Why do you allow such suffering? When you have the means to prevent those things, why do you allow an economy and a, and a structure of society and business in the West that hogs all of those things and makes money out of them and does not share them with those in need? God might just point the finger straight back at us and say, why do you tolerate such suffering? He might say millions are dying of starvation on a planet that has enough food for everybody while some of you are almost eating yourselves to death. Why do you tolerate such suffering? He might say millions have less money to live on than you spend on one cup of coffee. Why do you tolerate such suffering? Why, human being, do you allow such suffering in this world? There are more people involved in slavery and trafficking now than there ever were before William Wilberforce abolished the slave trade. Why do you tolerate it, he might say? Why do you allow it? So much of it coming as a result of internet pornography. Why do you tolerate it? Why do you tolerate the, the trafficking trade that results to meet a demand that has been created by that? God would say, why do you allow such suffering? God has given us a sense of, of dominion over creation and a responsibility for the environment and the world that we live in. And we do not frequently fulfill the responsibility that we have. In fact, Chris Wright even suggested that God might quote Eric Clapton, who said, before you accuse me, Take a look at yourself. Why do we suffer? We suffer because we sin. All suffering is the result of sin. But then the question moves back. Why did sin happen? Why did evil actually come along and cause people to sin? Another why question. Why does evil exist? Go to Genesis chapter 3. Please. And do keep bringing Bibles. Keeps you engaged. Encourages me. If you're using the Bible on your phone, hit that do not disturb button and keep those notifications at bay for half an hour. Genesis 3, verse 
Why does evil exist? You know, there's no simple answer to this question anywhere. Genesis 1 and 2, we have this beautiful creation. The only thing that God said was not good was for the man to be alone, to be lonely. And God then corrected that. Everything was good. Everything was beautiful. And Adam was working and enjoying his work. And fellowship with God, intimate fellowship with God, and a, and, a, and a connection between God and humanity and the earth. Everything was right and everything was good. And in our culture, we can't imagine reading this for the first time. But if you were to read this for the first time and you went through Genesis 1 and 2 and everything's lovely and you're wondering what is the rest of this book actually going to be about? Because <laughs> this sounds like this should be the happy ending. And then you get to chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Where did he come from? Where on earth? All this beauty. What is this invasion that has come in? No explanation. Unannounced. Already fully formed, evil appears. And there's so much that we cannot say about it. What can we say about this source of temptation, this snake in the grass that came in and invaded God's beautiful creation? We know this, it was not God. Because evil is not a part of who God is. So this serpent is not God. It was not another human being because evil is not a part of a human being fully alive in God, made in the image of God. God put nothing evil within humanity, nothing. It was not another human being. It was something else, something from the creation, but not God, not human, out of place, an intruder, unwelcome, and contrary to the story so far. And if evil comes from within the creation and it's not human, it must be from an angelic source. And when you read Revelation 12, in Revelation 12, John identifies the serpent as one and the same as the Satan says in Revelation 12, verse 7, there was war in heaven. Why? Why? Now, there's a passage in Isaiah 14 that people go to, and there's a passage in Ezekiel 28, but those are about human kings. Yes, you can see Satan's influence and activity there, but you need to be careful that we don't run too far with Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. We take what we've got. In Revelation 12, there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled down to earth and his angels with him. Something happened we don't know that caused this particular angel Satan, as he became known, to rebel against God, to want to be more than he was. 
and he was cast down and angels cast down with him. And the general agreement is then that they became demonic in their activity. And we must be careful that we do not look at Satan and, and do uh, or, or fall into a way of thinking that theologians refer to it as dualism, where we almost think in the red corner weighing in at whatever we've got God, and in the blue corner weighing in something similar we've got Satan, and they're going to slug it out for 12 rounds. That is nothing like that at all. Satan is not like God. He is not powerful. He is not all-present. He is not all-knowing. He's a created being. He is subject to God's authority at all times. He is on a leash at all times. Now that is the Word of God. And we must choose whether or not we believe that. He is not made in the image of God. So you don't feel sorry for him. Sometimes you will see the most despicable human being who has done the most despicable things and there's something in you that still recognizes the image of God. Not so with Satan. He is never to be pitied. He is relentlessly hostile, a liar, a murderer, on a leash, bound. And I think Christians need to step up their, their understanding of what Jesus did in the wilderness for 40 days after his baptism and before his public ministry. Because I believe at that point Satan was bound and hindered and restricted in what he could do to humanity. We want more information. We want to know when did this war in heaven happen? Why did it happen? How did it happen? Where did the evil come from that caused the angels and then the humans to fall? And we get no answer. God has revealed so much in the Bible about himself, about creation, about us, about sin, about salvation, about Jesus, about the future. And that makes it all the more significant that he has not said This is exactly where evil came from and why it was allowed. He has not given the answer to that question. Do you trust him? Do you trust him? We accept the mystery of evil, but we never accept evil. God has told us to resist it, reject it, stand against it at all times. We are not not here to understand it. We are here to resist it and stand against it. Why does God not stop evil when it's about to happen? Why does the trigger of the gun not jam? And the question, why doesn't God stop evil, again has implications. He has made us people of free will. Do you, would you rather be a robotic, micromanaged clone Any of you that work for a manager, when the manager micromanages you and interferes in the tiniest little aspects of your work, it drives you bonkers. And good managers don't do it and shouldn't need to do it. Do you really want to just be robotic, just just functioning and, and unable to decide or do anything for yourself, unable to love? You've got to hold that in your mind. With no free will, there is no love. No love for each other, no love for God. You cannot love as in being compliant with a directive that you're executing whether you want to or not. Love must be a choice, must be a choice. 
We cannot have a creation without free will. It is not loving to do that. Why does God not just wipe out evil? Let me read a little bit from Job. Go to Job 24. We'll probably spend a morning with Job sometime over the next couple of months. Job's before Psalms, if you're looking for him. Job 24. I love the honesty of Job. I love the honesty of the Bible. that It's not embarrassed to have things like this in it. Job 24. Question, why why does God not wipe out evil? Listen to, to Job. Verse 1, why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know Him look in vain for such days? Men move boundary stones. They pasture flocks they have stolen. They drive away the orphan's donkey and take the widow's ox in pledge. They thrust the needy from the path and force all the poor of the land into hiding. Like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go about their labor of foraging food. The wasteland provides food for their children. They gather fodder in the fields and glean in the vineyards of the wicked. Lacking clothes, they spend the night naked. They have nothing to cover themselves in the cold. They are drenched by mountain rains and hug the rocks for lack of shelter. The fatherless child is snatched from the breast. The infant of the poor is seized for a debt. Lacking clothes, they go about naked. They carry the sheaves but still go hungry. They crush olives among the terraces. They tread the wine presses, yet suffer thirst. The groans of the dying rise from the city, and the souls of the wounded cry out for help. But God charges no one with wrongdoing. Love the honesty of the Bible. That it's not, it doesn't try to airbrush out that. Job is just, just declaring all these injustices that he sees. And then he says, why does God not deal with it? And then you flick on a little bit and you read Psalm 130, verse 3. It says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? You want God to wipe out evil right now? Many of us think we'll still be standing after he's done. It is the grace of God that he does not answer prayers like that and that he tarries and waits for people to repent. Why does God not just wipe out evil? Why does God not answer my questions? You ever questioned God and just screamed out to him and asked, why don't you answer me? And I wonder sometimes, again, the audacity of that. What size is your God that you think you could understand everything that he would say? Isaiah 55 tells us that God's ways are higher than our ways. Do you think if God answered every question you asked that you would actually have the capacity to understand it? Are we getting a little too big for our boots as we stand before God? The way a guy called Judson Cornwall illustrated this was, he said, he said it's like talking to your dog. Do you ever talk to your dog? She said, my dog's a great listener. Talk to the dog and and the dog listens to you and you're just full on pouring out your heart to the dog. And there are about five words that the dog will understand. The dog will understand the word walk and the word treat and the word 
bed and the word no and maybe other words that cannot be uttered on a Sunday morning. And the dog will have a limited, as you talk to the dog, it'll, it'll pick up one word and then you'll, you'll speak 10 more minutes and then it'll pick up another word. And the rest of the time it'll just look at you kind of cute with its head over to one side and its wee ear just cocked up. Do you know what? That's the way I would be if God started to answer my questions. I wouldn't be able to cope with it. I'd be able to understand a little bit here and there, but his ways are higher than mine. He is the creator. I am created. I would not be able to actually comprehend his ways. And I have to accept that and choose to trust him. Why can we not make sense of evil? Chris Wright says, evil does not make sense. It doesn't make sense. In the world that God has created and created ourselves in his image, evil has no place in creation. It does not belong and it never will. It's beyond our understanding because it is not part of the reality that God intends for us to understand. Do you trust him? It is not there to be understood, but to be resisted. We see things, we are confronted with evil and suffering, and we say, where is the sense in that? And the response is silence. But the silence is the answer. There is no sense in it. You can't make sense of it. You can't rationalize evil. The God that we don't fully understand has decided it is better if we don't understand evil. And instead of nitpicking over the origin of it, let's focus on the one who did something about it. And I finish with 1 John 3 and Mark 15. You go to Mark 15, please, and I'll go to 1 John 3 and we're done. You've listened well. It's heavy aisle going. All we have in Genesis 3 is a very simple account of how sin and evil entered human life. Ultimately, because we rejected God's authority, we did not trust his goodness. And we disobeyed his commands. And the result was brokenness. The relationship between us and God, broken. The relationship between us and the earth, broken. So we don't have all the answers we want to our why questions. But we know this. Suffering exists because evil exists. Evil exists because the devil exists. And 1 John 3 it says, The Son of Man came to destroy the works of the devil. And that's where I put my focus. Instead of getting frustrated at God, instead of getting angry at God... I choose to trust him that I can't handle the truth. And I instead focus on the one who came to destroy the works of the devil. It is okay to ask why and not receive an answer. And that's why the problem of evil has historically always been called the problem of evil. Because we cannot just put it in a neat little box and say, we have that one all figured out. It's okay to ask why. It's good to have someone to ask. 
I often wonder how people who don't know God deal with suffering. Those of you that are going through anything at the minute, just imagine for a moment you don't have God. All you've got is yourself, your willpower, and your determination. How do people cope? And we will deal with it in the, in the future. We'll, we'll deal with trusting God when we don't understand. We'll deal with, I'm working on a message called Facing the Darkness. <laughs> turning around and running into it, not hiding from it, not denying the existence of it. But it's okay to ask why. The most common question in the whole area of suffering or the most common questions begin with why. And I think this is a beautiful thing to just leave with you. The cross was God's answer to the ultimate question. And the ultimate question really The invasion of evil and sin brought about death. And so the question whether or not humanity ever actually articulates it, the ultimate question always was, God, what are you going to do about sin and death? What are you going to do about it? This invader that should not be there, what are you going to do about it? Why is it there? Why do you do nothing about it? And the cross was God's answer to that question. Yet listen to Jesus' last words on the cross. Now let this hit you. He speaks in Aramaic and Mark in chapter 15 and verse 34 interprets the Aramaic. And Jesus, just before he breathes his last and gives up his spirit, He cries out and says, my God, my God, why? Why? Even at that moment, a why question was set before God. We do not have all the answers. We are not called to understand the full origin of evil. We are called to stand against it. Resist it, fight it in our homes, in our communities, in our town and in the world. Because so much of the world is suffering due to our decisions and what we tolerate and what we watch and what we endorse. So let's not get too caught up in why it is here and instead get caught up with the one who has done something about it. And bring that good news to a suffering world. Amen. Aaron.